0: Hey, you crazy wonderful people. Uh, welcome to 2022. Yes, yes I know we're 11, 12 days in to the new year and yes I know you've already been feasting upon the big interview with Mark Hately, um, an interview which took place in Fratelli Sarti, a wonderful venue um, in Glasgow. Um, but it was recorded in 2021. There's no point in trying to pull the wool over your eyes. This is the first bumper voice you've heard in 2022, which re- was recorded in the new year. I'm going to set aside my jovial tone, habitual jovial tone, uh, to quote from the judge in the intro to Porridge, to point out that this column that I'm reading now will be published today on the 11th of January and at ESPN FC's site, I'm really proud to work for them. It's been now about, I don't know, 11 years. And I enjoy it. I'm given free reign to to, um, put forward ideas. There's a range of very interesting writers that you can find on the site. And I'm grateful um, to James Martin for having said that he's cool with me recording these columns for you to listen to. I thought it was unavoidable to, to write about Wednesday night in in European terms, Wednesday night's match between Real Madrid and Barcelona in the Spanish Super Cup semi-final. But I can't be here amongst friends, amongst people that I respect, and not note that while there's a separate debate raised recently by Raul Garcia of Athletic about whether a, a nation's Super Cup should be held abroad or not, I find that a different debate, and it's not one I, I I feel is vital to go into right now. But I must register um, a distaste and an objection to the idea that Saudi Arabia's money was good enough to host this tournament. Again, for the second time. It was kept domestic last year in Seville because of the pandemic. But this is the second time that Saudi Arabia has hosted this tournament. Not because in any way the, the people of Saudi Arabia shouldn't be the ones to use their their windfall wealth to to tempt a federation to play big games there that's something that I, I think has multifaceted arguments about whether a country can raise their expectations uh, raise their their flag their identity via money paying big athletes to come there in some instances I'm I'm for it in some instances less so in this instance the fact that it's clear even by their own state admission that saudi arabia were culpable of the assassination of jamal khashoggi in the turkish embassy means that i find the idea that the classical is going to be celebrated in in jeddah at a time when there hasn't been except that there hasn't been any reparation made uh, for the assassination of an award-winning journalist who was pointing at miscarriages of, of natural justice. This column, in fact, my voice, can't change the fact that the, the deal is made with that regime. But I think that it's on all of us to, to speak out. So much shit going on, so much white noise going on from people and I'm sorry if this sounds snobbish, but from people who th- simply think that because they've got an opinion it's the truth, there's so much heat and anger that sometimes clarity and a willingness to state that which is fundamentally obvious can be these things can be obscured well not here i think it's it's on all of us simply to say that assassination needs to be answered for and it's my personal preference that while that is is not the case that the great spanish football matches shouldn't be taking place in saudi arabia there said the fact remains that it is going to happen and that's a deeply interesting prospect and For that reason, I I wrote this. It's been a few short weeks since Xavi commented that there's an abysmal gap between Real Madrid and Barcelona. Frankly, it'll be quite the surprise if Los Blancos don't underline the truth of those words in the Supercopa de España semi-final on Wednesday by handing the Blaugrana eleven a bit of a thumping. Barcelona's one-time magical midfielder, now the coach charged with producing a silk purse out of the sow's ear situation he inherited, was essentially talking about the points gap in the table. But ahead of what threatens to be Barcelona's fifth straight defeat to Madrid, something that hasn't happened since the gap between 1962 and 1964, it's likely that Chavi wishes he had not said any such thing. Because, well, somehow... He must convince his injury-afflicted, coronavirus-suffering, super-young, ultra-fledgling team that they're not going to suffer a healthy stuffing at the hands of Luka Modric, Karim Benzema, Vinicius Jr., Eder Militao and Tony Cruz. Again. Suddenly, with the ebullience of Nico and Gavi, the return of Ansu Fati, the possible return of Golden Boy winner Pedri, Luc Dion scoring goals and the signing of Ferran Torres to great fanfare, Barcelona, in principle at least, will be able to field a best 11 which can compete with most teams, Madrid included. But not just yet. Ansu and Pedri have missed most of the season, so has Ferran Torres. Frankie de Jong isn't going to be in shape to play, And if defender Ronald Araujo does make it, he'll be on the pitch five days after surgery to a broken bone in his hand, while Eric Garcia won't be ready for much competitive action before the end of February. This, to put it bluntly, is about a million miles away from the best time to be playing against a Real Madrid side that recently racked up a series of big-game performances to tuck away rivals like Real Sociedad, Atletico, Athletic Club and Sevilla in the Liga plus Italy's champions-elect Inter Milan. Victory has become a Pavlovian exercise for Madrid. The Russian Nobel Prize-winning scientist famously toyed with the conditioned reflex of dogs, training them so that when a buzzer sounded, it was time to salivate with hunger. Madrid are best in show, because even while they have proven to have an Achilles heel against Espanyol, Sheriff Tiraspol, and Getafe... Whenever a big rival is in their sights, they react with spiky, relentless winning character. They react with hunger. It's admirable and very dangerous for this version of Barcelona. Barca's defender Gerard Piquet doesn't agree. Well, he wouldn't. He said, I'm optimistic we can do them damage. It was unjust that they won the Camp Nou Classico. Author's note, no it wasn't. But we were down in the dumps then. The scenarios changed. We're on the rise. That last phrase is true, but let's check back on those words post match. Football is a crazy sport, but Barcelona upsetting these particular odds would be pretty seismic. At least Xavi has been here before. One positive in the old glass half full equation is that Barcelona's coach has already lived through a time when Madrid made Barcelona kneel when things at the Camp now were chaotic, debt ridden and deeply lacking in Catalan confidence. Back then, Los Blancos took full advantage. The positive I'm talking about is that Xavi suffered this, learned from it as a footballer, and then authored the greatest few seasons in both Barcelona's and Spain's entire footballing history. Ergo, the tunnel may be long and dark, but there's light coming. If you're going in the right direction, Chavi made his debut in a classical as an exciting 20 year old organising midfielder, but was promptly thumped 3 0 by a pre Galactico team including Nicolas Anelka, Jeremy, remember him, Aitor Karanka, and Guti. For the next four years, he was able to savour just one classical win out of eight matches. And he was in the Barcelona side that suffered the ultimate humiliation of being knocked out of the 2002 Champions League semi-final by Vicente Del Bosque's Madrid. It was misery for this Catalan who supported, indeed adored, Barcelona long before it appeared he might make the grade there. Like Raúl Iker Casillas or currently Dani Carvajal at Madrid... Xavi's passion for the Barca badge started long, long before huge wages guaranteed such loyalty. Ironically, it was around this time, when Xavi was young and Madrid were dominant and his future was being treated lackadaisically by most at the camp now, that he came close to playing for the man who will be in the opposition dugout at the sold-out King Abdullah Sports City Stadium this week. AC Milan spotted Chavi's youthful brilliance, sniffed a chance to take advantage of Barcelona's inept handling of the man who would eventually become their greatest ever midfielder, and they mounted a smash and grab operation. Carlo Ancelotti was still a few months away from being hired to run the Rossoneri, but then Milan chief executive Adriano Galliani came to the Catalan capital, met Chavi's dad, who represented him and put a succulent five-year deal on the table. His father liked the idea, and Xavi was swayed by the allure of the San Siro and the club that had so devastatingly won the Champions League in the Camp Now, starring Ancelotti, don't forget, 4-0 against Bucharest in 1989, when Xavi was a starry-eyed nine-year-old. The whole thing nearly happened. Only when Xavi's mum, Maria Mercè literally... And I mean, literally told her husband that this was a matter for divorce if her youngest son went to Syria A, where AC Milan, who'd soon be coached by Ancelotti for eight hugely successful years, informed that the deal was off. Chavi, they said, was going to make the best of his life in a trophyless, rudderless Camp now era. That didn't work out too badly. In fact, there are more things which unite Ancelotti and Chavi than divide them. The pair are positionally similar. Each of them excelled in organising and attacking midfield. Each of them made their full debut aged 18. And between them, they've enjoyed lifting the Champions League trophy nine times. They left Barcelona and Madrid in June 15, respectively. Ancelotti sacked for failing in the Champions League and La Liga. Xavi with a full camp now. Bruce Springsteen booming out on the tannoy. What a night that was. All his family there in tears and three trophies. His second fabled treble for the club. These two don't coach the same way, though. Nor do they have identical philosophies about how they want their team to play. Ancelotti is the specialist in, I'll adapt to what I've been given. while Xavi is the seeker of the holy grail of positional, possession, pressing 4-3-3 football but they are incredibly similar in what is now almost the most difficult facet of any coach's work at an elite club packed with superstars. Player whispering. John Terry told Ancelotti's ghostwriter in Quiet Leadership that, you know his training is excellent, but it's the personal touches. Asking about the family, caring about the off-field stuff, which for me is why the players love him. Instead of being distant, it's always that group mentality. Change the name Carlo to Xavi, and despite the vast disparity in coaching experience, the words could equally apply to the Catalan. Outwardly, each of them is an absolute gentleman, humorous, optimistic, open, upbeat, wonderful company, and replete with stories and acquired wisdom. They're still passionately obsessed with the sport itself not just their own careers, but the men who make football great. Little of this changes behind the scenes, but each of them again possesses an unflinchingly harsh side if they feel those working for them aren't fully on it. At halftime during their Bavarian elimination from the Champions League last month, Xavi let his players have an absolute earful in the dressing room. His words would have stripped paint, Post-match, he spat out a phrase about how FC Barcelona deserves better than what we've seen. A new era starts here and now. Ancelotti rarely shows the steely edge, either publicly or to his squad, which all his ex-players and ex-assistants swear can be unleashed if his standards aren't being met. Once, when in charge of PSG, during a game against Evian when his team weren't doing well, the Italian with the caterpillar eyebrows lost his temper so badly at halftime that he punched the door open, to the extent that his assistant, guest on the big interview, Paul Clement, thought that Carletto might have damaged himself. He then took a running kick at a crate on the floor, which flew off and cracked Zlatan Ibrahimović right in the head. During Ancelotti's previous two seasons in charge at the Bernabeu, Chavi, the player, got the better of him. Well, just. The classical count was 3-2 in Barcelona's favour, though one of Ancelotti's win was the Copa del Rey final. Perhaps, pound for pound, honours were actually even. Soon after they both left their respective clubs in June 15, they were reunited at the leaders' conference in London, where Xavi was asked to present Ancelotti with an award. The Catalan's view was, it's an honour to give a prize like this to Carlo. He's been exemplary in every country where he's coached. He's won trophies in every league where he's worked. But above simply winning or losing, he's always set standards. Respectful without fail to his players, his rivals and referees. I'm proud to know him. Ancelotti's response typically was, "Javi is marvellous, a great example for everyone in football. Beyond his huge quality as a player, he has always shown fantastic attitude and behaviour on the pitch. Classical coaches don't usually speak about each other like this. In fact, it was something of a love-in from two men who, though they may disagree, gesticulate and perhaps even briefly fall out on Wednesday, and who, though they are markedly different phases of their coaching careers, share far more in common than what divides them. Magnificent midfielders, cracking coaches, football obsessives, decent men. Enjoy the Classical.